A sword is forged by a blacksmith, who then shows it to his young son as he tells him the riddle of steel. And he goes on about the importance of steel to their people, the Chimerians. I was eight, sitting in front of the TV watching Conan the Barbarian for the very first time with a homemade cardboard sword, immediately invested. I had a thing for jacked dudes with swords ever since I was watching He-Man when I was five. This, Conan, it was next level. It was the natural evolution. Sitting there with my dad while my mom was away, it felt like I was just like Conan, sitting on a mountain with his dad. And I want to note that my dad also had a beard at the time, so it felt extra cool. This movie had it all. I was glued. My dad fell asleep. This is Issue Zero, a show about the power of fandom and pop culture. And today, I'm here to tell you about Conan the Barbarian and why you too should fall in love with this tragically underrated and misrepresented hero. After my initial infatuation with the bronzed warrior, I grew up and kind of moved on. That's until I was 14 and I was hanging out with some of these classic early 90 metalhead kids. Their names were Matt and Jim. Matt had this older brother who was terrifying. Like he's a giant terrifying dude to this day. His name was Clayton. And uh, in his room, there was this super over-the-top barbarian poster with scantily clad women and ragged fur bikinis. And then in front, looking as pissed and savage as ever, Conan. I asked Clayton about it. And he gave me some of those ratty old Conan comics. You know, the, the oversized black and white Marvel ones from the 70s. I'd be lying if I started naming the creators involved. This was long before I would ever really take note of artists and writers. But they were cool and the stories were awesome. And that's the joy of comics, especially in those days. They gave the story time to breathe. What could be told directly in one page with just the bare bones was given like two or three pages. There were massive panels with dark fantasy art. It was all crazy, just pulling you into Conan's world. You felt like you were lost in a desert for days. The panels were placed in such a way that you really felt the passing of time. And the way that Conan was approached on those pages was a lot different than in the movie. I mean, he had depth of character. Now, this isn't me slagging the original movie released in 1982, because I think they did a great job with presenting Conan and incorporated a lot of his personality traits one finds in those original stories. But the Conan in the comics was more aloof, smarter. Jim Zub, he's a Canadian comic book writer and artist and an art instructor, best known for creating comics like Skull Kickers, Wayward, and Glitter Bomb for Image Comics, and writing the series The Thunderbolts, Uncanny Avengers, Avengers No Surrender, and Champions for Marvel Comics, as well as The Savage Sword of Conan. And he knows a thing or two about the titular character. He says that Conan was just as likely to try and trick someone and avoid a fight than he was to draw swords. And for the most part, Conan reacted to violence rather than instigating it. Well, I think it depends on how far he's pushed as well, right? Like, I think he's, most of the time, he's relatively strategic or, or at least more smart about it. He's not just a pure rage machine. The rage is sort of like unlocked if he has nothing else to sort of, if he's been pushed past the point or he's up against a foe that all of his regular wit and prowess isn't going to get him through, you know? 
My love for Conan progressed further when I read the books. They were written almost a hundred years ago by a guy named Robert E. Howard. Did you know that the very first Conan short story was published in Weird Tales magazine in December of 1932? It was titled The Phoenix on the Sword. It features a middle-aged Conan who, after years of adventuring, is now crowned king. It's a weird starting point, because when I say Conan, the average person doesn't think king. They think dude in a loincloth, ravaging about the countryside, fighting a legion of foes, both human and mystic. And he also has abs. But one of the more interesting things is that Phoenix on the Sword really captures the crux of what Conan truly is. A man provoked into action by those who feel superior to him. See, the world Conan comes from is like ours, but from a long time ago, before natural and mystical disasters shook the land to its present form. A period of time called the Hyborian Age. There were many nations and regions, but to keep things simple, we're really only going to focus on two, for now. And the first is Aquilonia. It is the biggest and most powerful and advanced kingdom there is. Think of Aquilonia as like ancient Rome. One of those neighbors was a land called Chimeria. Now, I have always pronounced it Chimeria. I've been told it's supposed to be Cimeria, like the real-life Sumerians who lived in ancient Mesopotamia, but I can't. I just can't do it, man. It's like saying Conan instead of Conan. So just bear with me because... I was reading the word long before I was hearing it. Regardless, Chimeria was a wild land. Hills, cliffs, mountains, and forests teeming with game. The Chimerians were strong-willed and fierce. They were a people who were also incredible smiths. They had bronzed skin, strong features, and a proud heritage built upon honor and honesty. The Chimerians didn't seek violence. They just were not a people to shy away from it. They viewed combat as an art form. Everyone, men and women trained to fight, everyone was called to arms when needed. But back to the Aquilonians. See, they looked down on the Chimerians. Suited to slavery, gladiator pits, mercenaries when required, but little else. So right from the get-go, our very first introduction to Conan in the books is from the perspective of the Aquilonians who view him and his Chimerian people as subhuman. To the Aquilonians, Conan is not even worthy of the status of being human, simply because he's not a high-born city dweller. In the story, Conan has killed a tyrant king and freed the common people, wiping clean the caste system and the petty nobles that oppress the masses. He did what Daenerys claimed she was going to do in Game of Thrones, only instead of burning an entire city, he just killed the ringleaders at the top. Those nobles, however, would go on to plot and scheme as they attempted to retake the throne, claiming Conan was a murderous barbarian. This is always the common theme in Howard's works. Conan comes in, kills a despot who brutalizes his people, and is betrayed by the very people he was trying to help because they were greedy. Howard consistently associated society with greed. He felt that humanity was in itself noble and honorable, but it was the trappings of society that corrupted people. In fact, he had an ongoing debate with author and creator of the Cthulhu mythos, 
H.P. Lovecraft, about the innate nobility of mankind. It was something he was quite passionate about, and you can read the actual letters the pair wrote in a two-volume collection of those letters and their correspondences, and it's called A Means to Freedom from Hippocampus Press. Knowing Howard's life could hold the key to understanding who Conan is. Robert E. Howard was born in a small Texas town in 1906. It was an idyllic, small community until an oil boom in the early 20s brought in all manner of vice, gambling, violence, criminal enterprise. He often wrote about how awful his rural oasis had become, all thanks to oil, industry, and the trappings of wealth. He was also a believer in physical health, chopping woods, lifting weights, all those things many more cosmopolitan types would frown on as being base. Howard viewed as an important way of living a healthy life. This has been repeatedly mentioned in the countless Howard biographies out there, too. He spent much of his time in gymnasiums, in particular boxing gyms, which served not only as his inspiration for Conan, but also the central inspiration for his many stories about boxing, such as The Iron Man, The Pit of the Serpent, and countless others, all collected in the book Boxing Stories from Bison Books. Weird Tales magazine the publication responsible for bringing the Chimerian warrior to the masses, had been publishing a lot of Conan stories beginning in 1932. In fact, there were 15 short stories printed in three years, and there was also a serialized version of the only true Conan novel Howard ever wrote, The Hour of the Dragon, which I will say is still my favorite Conan story, bar none. Now, here's what's tragic. Conan as a character was really catching on. According to the Howard biography, The Last Celt from Glenn Lord, Howard had gone from making less than $1,000 a year in 1933 to making more than 2000 in 1935 and another 2000 more in only the first six months of 1936. And Conan was the largest portion of that income. But Howard suffered greatly from heartbreak in his personal life. With one woman in particular, Novalyn Price, a former author who became a schoolteacher. There was even a movie made about their whirlwind romance in 1996 called The Whole Wide World. It starred Vincent D'Onofrio and Renee Zellweger. And it's entirely based on a memoir about Howard she wrote called One Who Walked Alone. Their romance itself is an odd and frustrating one. They were together off and on for two years, and according to Novalin's book, they'd both considered marriage, but at different times. And when things weren't proceeding as she'd hoped, she began seeing one of his friends, Truett Vinson. Howard found out about this new romance from Vinson himself while the two were on a trip through the Southwest looking for creative inspiration. And according to Price's book, her friendship with Howard was never the same. You think? It was friendly, and he read her writing, but he was far cooler than before. Now, remember when I said the key to knowing Conan is knowing Howard? Here's an example that, to me at least, is pretty spot on. According to Mark Finn's biography of Howard, he was actually working on the Conan story Red Nails while on that fateful trip to the Southwest. And the story begins with a female warrior, Valeria, who is being pursued by Conan, who insists that she is the only woman he's ever loved. 
how perfect she is, how incredibly skilled as a warrior, etc. Yet she spurns his advances. That is art imitating life, man. Only instead of Conan respecting Valeria's skills as a warrior, you've got Howard respecting Price's skills as a writer. He suffered more heartbreak when in June of 1936, his mother, whose health had been failing for years, slipped into a coma. According to Rusty Burke's Howard biography, he spoke to the nurse about his mother's prospects for recovery, and after learning she was indeed dying and would never come out of the coma, he walked out to his car and shot himself in the head with a handgun he borrowed from a friend. He was only 30 years old. This happened as there was an explosion in Conan's popularity. There were still stories lined up for print. And the month following Howard's death, Weird Tales published its final Conan story, Red Nails, the one about Valeria we just talked about. Now, this wasn't the end for Conan or Howard's legacy, not at all. 20 years later, some of Howard's previously unpublished Conan stories found their ways into collections and other publications. Some of them were left undone. Some of them were reworked and given new endings. The first of these was the Gnome Press edition, released in 1950. It even included some of Howard's non-Conan stories, like Solomon Kane and Bran McMorn. His work was now finding a broader audience than it ever had before. In 1952, a serial comic began in Mexico, which was the first Conan comic ever, if anyone was taking notes out there. In the early 1960s, there was a renewed interest in sword and sorcery. Lord of the Rings, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe all gained popularity, and Conan got swept up in that wave. He'd become so popular that by 1970, Marvel Comics was looking to expand its roster and was polling readers about what types of stories they were after. Sword and Sorcery was ahead by a mile. Now, Conan at this point was a risky venture for Marvel. It was a comic that would be set in its own universe, would have no interaction with anything else from Marvel, but they were willing to risk it knowing how popular the sword and sorcery genre had become. It was going to cost them, too. Getting the rights to Conan would go as high as $200 per issue. So, even though they wanted John Buscema, a Comics Hall of Famer who at the time was one of their AAA talents to do the art, they couldn't afford it. So they literally gave it to the cheapest talent on the roster that they had. In an interview from 1994, Buscema said, At the time, Marvel was owned by Martin Goodman, and he felt that my rate was too high to take a gamble on some new kind of project. It wasn't a superhero or anything that had been done before. The closest thing to it would be Tarzan. Anyway, he had no confidence in spending too much money on the book, and that's where Barry Smith came in. He was very cheap. I know what he got paid, and I'd be embarrassed to tell you how much it was, because I'd be embarrassed for Marvel. So... Barry Smith, and they were going to do it in black and white to make it cheaper still. Again, the Chimerian Wanderer gets the short end of the stick, or broadsword, take your pick. And at first, it didn't do too well. Actually, that's not entirely true. It sold well as a first issue, and then the sales went down. So low that Stan Lee considered canceling the comic altogether. And then... At around issue 14, something happened. Conan became a huge seller. There's no real tangible reason as to why either. But you could argue it was value. 
People in comic shops were getting a lot more Conan for the same price as the standard superhero book, like twice as many pages per issue. And as a kid who used to dump their allowance on books off the spinner rack, more pages was a big deal to me. And since the production costs were so low, Marvel started doing giant-sized annual publications with all the comics included, which meant that anyone picking it up was getting even more bang for their comic buck, making it possible to cultivate new fans, just because they were able to learn so much more about the character and the world he lived in. To be fair, the Conan Marvel was publishing was different than the original created by Howard, Barry Smith and legendary writer Roy Thomas, who eventually took over as Marvel's editor-in-chief from Stan Lee, are really the ones responsible for the modern perception of the shirtless, loincloth-wearing murder machine. They took a character that was niche and brought him to a more blood-soaked, larger audience. Well, no one was actually blood-soaked other than Conan, because he's a barbarian. Get it? They doubled down on the barbarism to please the audience. There were the elements of his intellect and still humor still present, but for the most part, he was as dour as they came. They created the classic barbarian-esque reaver you know today. That's not bad. It's an amazing collection, and you can buy the whole thing in these phone book-sized tomes at comic book shops. Their run also featured adaptations of the original Howard stories, as well as countless new ones. And the Conan they created became so popular, it led to the movie, 1982's Conan the Barbarian. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. That same movie I was obsessed with as a kid, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the one that introduced me to Conan as a character. It had James Earl Jones as the villainous sorcerer Tulsa Doom and featured elements introduced through the years in the comics and books. And it showed Coleman as not a throwdown unstoppable killer, but also a thief and a warrior who relied on his wits. It also featured one of the most prominent aspects that all too many people ignore, his indomitable will. Conan succeeds because he refuses to fail, period. There was also a sequel in 1984 called Conan the Destroyer, and I feel confident in saying that if this was your first exposure to Conan, there's a good chance it was also your last. The key difference between Conan the Destroyer and its predecessor was the lack of an R rating. They wanted to make a movie younger audiences could enjoy. They added more comedy, and it resulted in a lackluster slapstick schlockfest that frustratingly tainted Conan's legacy. And as a Conan fan, I like to pretend that movie doesn't exist. As for the comics, well, Marvel published Conan under a slew of titles until the late 90s. Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Savage, King Conan, etc. And then, due to slumping sales, they stopped. In 2003, one of the smaller comic presses, Dark Horse, who at the time were publishing Star Wars comics and were largely responsible for introducing North American audiences to manga via their slew of translated Japanese comics throughout the years, got the rights to Conan. And the work they did was incredible. They began creating a biographical look at Conan's life, taking the stories Howard wrote and building on them chronologically rather than the order in which they were originally published. So by the time their arc was finished... 
You had Conan's entire life story in your hands. They even filled in gaps of his life, depicting him as a child hearing tales of glory on his grandfather's lap, who you learn was the main influence in Conan's desire to seek glory and to be an adventurous wanderer. And the comic talent featured in that Dark Horse run was unbelievable. They had Kurt Busiek, a godlike writer of the Avengers and the creator of the fan favorite comic Astro City. The initial pencil sketches were provided by Canadian Carrie Nord, whose take on Conan was channeled directly from his fanboy's heart. Eventually, Becky Cloonan took over and she drew Conan like a lean boxer from the 1940s, something fans of the Howard books went crazy for. She was followed by James Heron, who drew what many would argue is the finest depiction of a gladiatorial decapitation ever printed in comics. You can find it in the Trades from Dark Horse, Book 13, Queen of the Black Coast. But if you want the single, it's Conan the Barbarian number 5 from June of 2012. It was during this run another Conan movie was released, 2011's Conan the Barbarian. They had a huge budget for it, more than $90 million. Jason Momoa was cast in the lead, and he is the perfect Conan, period. And oh boy, was it bad. Like, bad. And the frustrating thing is how much it had going for it. There was a resurgence in Conan fandom thanks to Dark Horse going above and beyond in their treatment of Conan's story. Momoa had just finished a run on Game of Thrones as Cal Drogo and was bringing in that fandom as well. But here's the thing. If your story is dumb, and believe me, the story was dumb, your movie will also be dumb. Instead of borrowing from the countless stories already out there, they attempted to reinvent the character for a new audience and failed dramatically. It cost $90 million to make, and it didn't even bring in $50 million bucks during its entire run. That includes hard copy and digital sales after the theatrical release. The most recent developments in the trials and tribulations of Conan came in 2018, when Marvel Comics, now part of Disney and the House of Mouse, reacquired Conan's rights from Dark Horse and launched a new series with Marvel Wonder Boy Jason Aaron, who'd just given the imprint one of its most successful runs of Thor ever, an Austrian Mahmoud Asrar handling the pencils. It even featured covers from Assad Ribic, whose watercolors perfectly, just perfectly convey the emotion of the title character. And you can tell Marvel took notes from Dark Horse, because they have their premier talent working on stories that fit in perfectly with the mythos of the original books. And it shows. In January of 2019, Conan was back, and he looked good. You could feel the depth of the world they were exploring on every page. The physicality of the character was perfect and present. He looked world-weary, sullen, and unbreakable. And unbreakable is a great descriptor for Conan. Marvel's own Jim Zub, who, as we said, is actually working on the Savage Sword of Conan right now, agrees. He's always been a little bit more of like a survivor, kind of a, um, you know, like... Again, depending on the era you're writing him in, he's more of the thief. He's more of the the sort of, you know, he's almost like a force of nature. Like he moves through an area and he takes on the role he needs to be in order to survive. You know what I mean? 
He's certainly not savage, as much as they call it the savage sort of Conan and all that stuff. He doesn't, you know, unlock that on anyone who doesn't deserve it, right? To me, Conan the Barbarian isn't really barbaric at all. But he does use violence as a tool. He's just not mindlessly violent. For Raymond Salvador, who is an incredible comic book creator from Brooklyn, he says his stories offer more than that. You know, they, they talk about great melancholy and great mirth, and, and, and that's in there, you know, because it's all, the stories are all comments on the society that Howard saw around him, and, and the more you, the, you, you think about it historically, the more you can see that context. Conan's stories always include a moment where he gets mad that the strong are persecuting the weak, and he goes out to kill the oppressor, no matter the odds. Despite doing the right thing, he enjoys the adventure, the danger, and he'll be drunk a good deal of the time doing it, and he'll lay with any woman along the way, too. He's primal in his desires, but his deeds are born of a noble purpose. Now, some of you might judge me for liking Conan because you think he mistreats women, and I know that I said he's often looking to get laid because, well, he is. But the one thing that sets Conan apart is he doesn't ever force himself on a woman. Ever. It's just not something that he does. He has no problem sleeping with prostitutes and he will pay in full. But the women he pursues romantically are strong warrior women. He doesn't want a waif. He wants an equal. Here's Jim's up. Yeah, big time. He, I mean, he'll bed other women, but it won't mean anything. You know what I mean? Like he won't. Yeah, the, the the respect kind of thing, he definitely is more impressed by and, and engaged to an equal, absolutely. He wants a woman who reminds him of his mother. And I don't mean to get Freudian on you. No, his mom, while pregnant, went to war, weapon in hand. And after his birth, amid the blood and chaos of battle, his mother nursed him. And the first taste to enter his mouth was the blood of his people's enemies. Allegedly, that has gone on to play a role in the man Conan grows up to be. Mind you, being the child of a woman who marches into battle nine months pregnant means you've probably got some warlike genetics already. And that's interesting because remember that these stories were originally written in the 1930s and Robert E. Howard treated gender roles very differently than his contemporaries. Conan himself was born on the battlefield, and not in the sense his village was being attacked. The other thing that makes Conan really interesting is that he wants to be good for those around him, up to a point. Here's Raymond Salvador. I do not think he takes uh, advantage of, of those that are weaker than him. He wants you to act. He doesn't want anyone... He, 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 he's no, there's no BS... There is a bit of like stealing from the rich in some of the stories, especially when he's like a thief. And then, you know, there, there are certain times where he's like trying to adjust his behavior to the behavior of the people around him, like being a pirate and, 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 and other certain uh, activities. Um, but I, I don't think he, he, he I don't think he really gives a crap about anyone else, though. What it means is that Conan will not allow evil to take root. And for Jim Zub. It's about how the original author wrote the character. The way Howard writes them versus, say, someone like Roy Thomas in the comics, it all sort of, you know, he definitely moves between roles. Like, 
sometimes he's more motivating of the story and sometimes he's more thrust through the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You could easily find versions that conform to one or the other, depending on how you want to frame it, you know, because sometimes he's just sort of like, he, he, some of the, the, the depictions of him are very much like, well, you know, because he believes in Krom and Krom doesn't, to help anybody you you're out for yourself and yet they always tend to show that he will if shit comes to it he'll help someone out or you know he won't just let someone get murdered for the sake of getting murdered you know so if you've been passing on conan the barbarian i suggest you reconsider take a look at the hero that through his carnal desires is quite noble in his pursuits plus if nothing else conan the barbarian stories are fantastic works of adventure and should really be looked at with the same fervor as Lord of the Rings or other highbrow fantasy. And that at the end, it all comes down to Robert E. Howard, at least according to Raymond Salvador. Well, the first, I've had that exact conversation with people. And the first thing I have to tell them is that their perception of it is that it's going to be not, no, you know, no depth, like simple adventure and not even have any weight or any any interesting stuff to it like Lord of the Rings where I would I would say that you know that's a perception that people have maybe based on the movie or something maybe I can't really say or maybe just the fact that he is called Conan the Barbarian um, but I say that you know it's, it's, it's remarkably deep and the social and political commentary that's in there and the idea you know and he is like shoehorning his own beliefs uh, onto the character and onto that world but it's also it's interesting to see the parallels that he saw and it's also interesting to see the character it's uh, himself like because I, I've heard many many times that uh, Howard like saw boxers and these men and these workers that were like these these big strong simple guys that lived really good lives and a lot of them um were not uh white and they were like a lot of mexican um uh individuals that that worked around him and that conan is modeled after a lot of these guys and that to me is also very intriguing and it also it, it opens up people's eyes to the idea of what Conan could mean metaphorically. But then on top of that, I say they're really fun, you know, adventure stories and really interesting. Um, and, I, I, you know, just as, as, as interesting as something like, you know, the Lord of the Rings or, or any of those, like the really big, uh, more famous uh, fantasy storylines. Regardless, eight-year-old me fell in love with Conan and hard. So I'm super happy to see he's making his way back into pop culture and maybe we'll get lucky. And Disney Plus will come along and make a live-action series because, let's be honest, he's a flawed hero that is totally underrated. So thanks for joining us on this voyage to the Hyborian Age. And as always, I'll leave you with Issue Zero Recommends. This week, we're going to be pretty on the nose, and I am going to recommend The Hour of the Dragon. As I said earlier, it's the only full Conan novel that Robert E. Howard ever wrote. It's my favorite Conan story because it's about Conan after he's past his prime. He's an old man and he gets betrayed, loses his kingdom, and the entire story is him on a massive journey trying to get it back. And he goes along and meets all his old friends and all his old cohorts and together they're able to put Aquilonia back together again. I would recommend you check that out. A special thanks to Jim Zub and Raymond Salvador for talking with us today. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Issue Zero so you never miss an episode. 
And while you're at it, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all our guests. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Fearless underscore Fred on Facebook and Instagram. And you can email me at issue zero at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, our amazing producer. And our sound design and final production is from Rob Johnson. See you next time for more Issue Zero.